yeah, if there's a potentially higher threatening environment or stressor, um, you are going to, the brain is going to rely on that. And that, I guess, brings us to the whole purpose of having pain. It's meant to protect us. Welcome to the Athletes First Performance Podcast, where two performance-minded physical therapists break down the evidence to improve overall health, movement, and performance for athletes and active individuals. All right, welcome to episode 11 of the Athletes First Performance Podcast. This week, we're starting a new series on pain. So hopefully you guys enjoy this and make sure to let us know what you think about the series. So be on the lookout over the next couple of weeks regarding everything pain science. Josh, how are you doing? Pretty good. I'm excited to talk about this topic. This is kind of one of my one of my favorite things to, to chat about. So it should be fun. Yeah, I know this is your wheelhouse and I'm, I'm pretty excited to learn about this as well. This is not something that I've dove into deeply like you have. So excited to get this rolling. So to start with, can you just define pain and define pain science in general? Yeah, um, so the official definition of um, like pain neuroscience education is it's an, an educational intervention aiming to alter a patient's beliefs and cognitions regarding their pain experience. Um, so that's kind of when you start to hear people say like, we're going to pain science somebody, essentially you're just educating them about pain and ideally the least confusing way as possible. Um, and we'll talk about that in like in future episodes, whether that's the right technique or how to maybe do that a little bit better. Um, so yeah, the definition, um, for pain is officially defined by the international association for the study of pain as an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with or resembling that associated with actual or potential tissue damage. Um, so that's a consensus definition. Um, and it basically covers the, the bigger points of that, you know, obviously pain will, can happen uh, with an actual physical uh, stimulus, but also can occur without one. Um, and it all depends on what the brain decides. So those are the main definitions of pain. I don't know if you had been familiar with that, those before. No, I really, like I said, I have not really dove into this at all. I haven't done any courses or haven't done much reading on pain science. So um, this is all new and it's great information. So I think everyone will definitely enjoy this. Um, so moving on from the definition, can you break down the process of pain? Because I know this gets a little bit fuzzy for some people. Yeah, this may get a little bit um, deep into the weeds, I guess, but I think it's helpful to understand. I mean, you don't have to memorize the whole like, physiologic process, but I'm going to talk about that and try to make it as, um, least intimidating as possible and try to use some like analogies and metaphors, um, to help bring the point across. Um, but yeah, so essentially in, in a, a long time ago, they, they would have considered us to have pain fibers in the nervous system that would create pain, but, um, that theory was later debunked. And, and now the common, um, theory is that there are not pain fibers, but information fibers. And those are called nociceptors. Um, those nociceptors are constantly buzzing at a, at a low um, rate, just monitoring the system. Um, when a noxious stimulus or um, something that, that would cause the nociceptors to set off um, occurs, you will see an influx of um, positive ions into that nociceptor, which then will create 
and action potential. And what that essentially means is you get this, you have to get this buildup of um, stimulus to the point where the nociceptor fires a signal and that what we generally would call a danger signal. Um, there are a couple different fibers that will fire that, that the signal will run up. Um, and depending on the, they'll be defined by the speed of their um, conduction or like how myelinated they are um, or also what they react to. So the nociceptors will typically react to three um, stimulus, mechanical, thermal, or chemical stimuli. And um, the primary nociceptor or fiber that you would see, um, and this is mainly in chronic pain, is the C fiber. And then you also have the A delta fiber, the alpha delta fiber. So um, the A delta fiber is highly myelinated and can send signals very quick up to the spinal cord. Um, they typically would, they typically would like define that um, fibers result as like your first pain. Um, it's the, it's the typical like sharp pain that you would get. Um, like if you were to stub your toe, that initial first pain that you would feel, um, and it's very easy to localize. It's not, you know, it's sharp, easy to localize and it's quick. And then later on, if you can imagine that like stubbing your toe, you may start to get this aching type pain. And that is coming from the C fiber. The C fiber is not myelinated. So it conducts a, um, it's, message very slowly. So it comes second. And we'll talk about the C fiber a little bit more when it comes to like chronic pain or central sensitization. Um, but yeah, so the, you kind of mainly have two, two fibers that are going to send potentially um, noxious stimulus up towards the central nervous system. Um, there's a couple other fibers that primarily work with um, like non-noxious stimuli and things like that. Um, but we'll just focus on these two. So, uh, after the signal is fired off, it goes up to the, uh, up the A fiber, the C fiber to the dorsal horn of the spinal cord. And at the dorsal horn, it'll meet this inner neuron. Um, the inner neuron has been described as like a bouncer at the bar. So it decides what messages will, um, eventually make its way over to the second order neuron, which will basically decides what message will be sent to the brain um, to determine if it's potentially threatening or not. So if it's um, like a common message, for example, if you're wearing like a t-shirt and you feel, you, you know, if you, if you had a message every time the nociceptor felt that t-shirt on your skin, it would be like wildly annoying. So typically the inner neuron is going to inhibit most of the things that it, uh, most of the messages that it gets. That way you don't constantly feel clothes touching you, or if you're sitting in a chair, you don't like constantly feel that. Um, as far as potentially dangerous signals, it doesn't always inhibit those. Those typically will get by, um, but essentially it will pass through the inner neuron. Um, it'll then approach a second order neuron that will send it up um, to the brain and it goes up the spinothalamic tract or the spinoreticular tract to the thalamus. Um, the thalamus can kind of be considered a relay center. So it just, it receives the information, it sends it where it needs to go. Um, and typically it's going to send it to the sensory cortex where our sensation comes from, particular areas of the body. And then also limbic structures, um, which, which can possibly contribute to the emotional sides of pain. Um, at that point, the brain decides, is the signal dangerous or not? If it is, 
will send pain down to the area where it received the stimulus. If it's not, then it will block the signal essentially and modulate it by sending um, endogenous chemicals such as um, endorphins, serotonins, or opioids and essentially stop the pain. Um, is that pretty clear? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a lot of science behind everything. Um, but let me ask you this question. This might be a little bit more um, like a real life scenario that people can help understand. So say I'm hiking mm -hmm. in the woods and I see a pack of coyotes or a pack of wolves and I start taking off and running and I roll my ankle, but I still need to get away from the wolves or the coyotes. And I just keep on running, running, running. I don't feel my ankle at the moment. But then later on, I start feeling my ankle once I get to safety. Can you can you kind of break down what happens and with like the bouncer scenario and the, the different um, fibers that work that way? Yeah. So, um, I mean, the roll in your ankle scenario in the absence of the coyotes would work just like I said. You get a signal up from the ankle, goes the spinal cord up to the brain, decides that it's damaged or irritating or threatening, you get pain there. Um, but yeah, when there's a, when there's another potential stimulus, um, in your environment, like the coyotes, um, your brain has to determine what's the bigger threat and the bigger threat's going to be the coyotes. So you're not, that's when those endogenous, um, chemicals will come down and block the, uh, the, the pain signal that you possibly could have, or the damage signal, pain signal that you could have. Um, you're going to see more of that come from the brain than the actual inner neuron in the spinal cord, um, because it's having to assess your environment and stress levels and things like that. Um, but yeah, that's a great example of how powerful the brain's descending modulation can be. Um, and, and essentially a lot of the medications and things that people are prescribed for, for pain or chronic pain are, are kind of meant to replicate that. Um, but the brain is, is the best at it. Uh, so yeah, if there's a potentially higher threatening environment or stressor, um, you are going to, the brain is going to rely on that. And that, I guess, brings us to the whole purpose of having pain. It's meant to protect us. So um, if you didn't have pain, you wouldn't know if your hand was touching a stove or, um, you know, if you had a cut on the bottom of your foot and you just kept walking on it because you, you didn't know. So it's meant to protect us, but at the same point, our brain is our whole point as far as survival goes. Um, that survival is the the biggest peak. So if pain may not be the thing that would protect us in that situation, they're gonna it's gonna inhibit that to get you out of harm's way. I'm sure you'll feel that ankle later um, once everything is calmed down. But yeah, that's a good example of descending modulation. Another thing that popped up in my head, I've heard this before, pain is a request for change. What do you think about that statement? Good, bad? Uh, yeah, yeah. No, I think it's good. It's like, uh, it's just a signal to, to, to do something. Um, if you have pain when you're sitting in a chair, like let's say your back's bothering you, um, it's a signal to change it up, you know, maybe stand up, maybe move a little bit. Um, and it does, it's not always that simple depending on how severe the pain is, but yeah, it's just a signal to say, Hey, something's going on. Um, it seems to be threatening. Can we do something about it? And when it comes to patient care, I try to tell them that like, if you, if you have pain, um, think of it as it's just telling you to do something. So if, and I use that example of someone sitting with like back or neck pain, 
if they start to get pain in that position, they obviously know they didn't, you know, hurt themselves structurally. Um, so just figure out what thing typically helps make the pain go away and do that. And that's kind of all your brain is asking you to do. It's just saying, Hey, can we, I don't know, can we stand up? Can we walk around? Can we do this stretch? Can we do this exercise? Um, because you know, something's happening and, and if you want it to stop and it's just asking you to do something. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's pretty cool stuff, just how powerful the brain is and what changes it can make depending on the situation and the environment. Um, does that cover everything for breaking down the pain modulation? Is there anything else that you want to cover that in that uh, aspect? No, I think that's it. I think it's just understanding that it, well, and not necessarily having to, like, we know that it can stop pain. I mean, I'm sure people have been in those situations or heard those um, situations of like, you hurt yourself, but there's a car coming or particularly a lot of the stories that then come from the military where they get, you know, very injured structurally, but they're still able to, I mean, it's amazing what they, what it can block. Um, and the biggest point is, is just knowing that that's possible because it helps you explain the difference between pain and injury and that they're not typically the same. Yeah. There's uh they're not mutually inclusive. They're exclusive. They can be different than each other. Um, right. So what about changing, changing the scene here? What about these odd pains that people get? Like when it's cold, people say their knee hurts or things like that. Can you try to explain some of that situation? Yeah. So that's, that's super interesting because a lot of times people come in the clinic and they'll say that they have pain because of this. Um, and it's, you know, when I, you know, before I knew or had learned about this stuff, it's just like, all right, moving on, you know, cause it's hard, like, oh, it's cold out. My joints are killing me or, oh, um, you know, I had, a, had a long day at work, my neck's killing me kind of thing. Um, so yeah, there's when, when you look at the nociceptor at like a smaller level, um, there's ion channels and the ion channels, what we talked about, or it's kind of the channel that you get this influx or outflux of positive and negative ions. And in a, typical situation at resting state with no danger signals or anything, no pain, that um, positive and negative interchange is going to be relatively equal. Um, so you're getting just kind of this flat line of buzzing. Um, and then when you have some sort of injury or stimulus that would create a danger signal or that seems to be threatening, um, those positive ions will, in, will go into that, um, through that ion channel. And then that would build up to create an action potential, which will send the message up towards the spinal cord. Um, so they did, they, they found out that these ion channels are sensitive to different stimuli. So you have ion channels that are sensitive to temperature change or stress or movement or blood flow or immune responses. Um, and I think there's a few others too, but those would be the main ones that would probably affect what we're doing. So it would make sense that if somebody has you know, maybe those ions are going into that temperature ion channel, which could make temperature more um, uh, sensitive or more likely to uh, send a signal. So the interesting thing is that when you have, when a nerve has been damaged or myelin has been um, kind of destroyed to a degree, ion channels will, will um, kind of perpetuate, they'll grow and there'll be more of them increase in concentration. Um, so if you happen to get increase in ion channels that focus more towards temperature or stress or movement, 
then those stimuli may be more likely to affect the symptoms that you're feeling. So that can be why someone comes in and they've had pain for a long time and you're not really going to see, and I don't think I've ever seen, and you can tell me if you have someone who hurt themselves two weeks ago or saying, Oh, it's cold out. My foot hurts. You know, like, I don't, have you ever seen that? No, it's usually more of that chronic, chronic type of deal, chronic pain that they've been having for a long time. Right. So you get the, you get the, the just persistent injury of the nerve or of the axon, which removes the myelin, you get more ion channels. And if you're getting a higher concentration of ion channels, um, that, you know, for instance, are sensitive to temperature change, you can be more likely to have that um, threat signal sent up to the brain and back down, um, due to change in temperatures, because there's basically more gates open for positive ions to flow into. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. I know for myself, I broke my thumb and had surgery on it like seven years ago. And I know that when it gets cold, my thumb gets stiff and achy and painful. So does that help explain why that may be? Yeah. I mean, from, I mean, there's way, there's people that are way smarter than the, than about all that stuff than me. And I think of it as it's cool to know the science. Um, I don't ever really assume something is causing something, but yeah, it makes sense in my head. Like, um, it's just good to have some sort of possible, at least for me, like, I like things sort of cut and dry as you can in physical therapy, um, to have some sort of like, Oh, this is why this could happen. So it just makes sense. That way you're not just like, Oh, this person's just like, I can't do anything about that. You know, you don't have to give them that explanation I just gave them, but in your head, it makes sense. Um, which can help with management, I think. Yeah. And one more thing on this topic. Yeah. I know you mentioned blood flow. So if say someone's having a good deal of pain in the area and there's really no cause for it in terms of like treatment wise, just improving blood flow with like getting them on like an assault bike or just getting their heart rate up and pumping like that. How does that influence these ion channels? Is that a legit question? I mean, that may be beyond my scope, but okay. I would, I would, ima- no, I yeah. mean, I would imagine just like any of these other, any of these other, um, possible uh ion channels if you change whatever the change is would make an effect good or bad so blood flow i mean for us temperature stress and movement would probably be the most obvious thing that we could help with um well not really temperature i guess and let's just say put on more clothes maybe or something but like stress and movement for sure blood flow is a little different it'd be interesting and you'd have to look into this but like how blood flow restriction may help or hurt with that um but yeah i would imagine if you can change something, um, in the context that may reduce the stimulus that's going up to the spinal cord in the brain, and it should be beneficial. So it could be sort of along those lines. If we're just sort of, I don't know, spitballing here. Like if someone comes in and, um, they just got out, they just woke up their knees hurting. It's stiff because they've been sleeping all night and you get them on a bike, for example, and they're going to have more movement. They're going to have more blood flow. Um, and their, the temperature in the joint, I mean, their whole body temperature is going to go up. So if they get off that, you know, saying that's feeling better, we typically would just chalk it up to like, oh, we got warmed up, um, which is fine. You don't need to like, that's perfectly explainable. Um, but it could be because of these ion channels and how, um, because I mean, these ion channels are there regardless if there's been chronic injury or not, they just increase 
um, in number when there has been. So yeah, I mean, it's possible that you get someone moving on a bike and things loosen up. Maybe it's because the blood flow's changed. Maybe it's because movements helped. Maybe because temperature's gone up. Hard to say. But again, beyond my scope. But there's a ton of stuff out there that like explains this very confusingly well. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I'm gonna start looking into it because I mean, it's it's interesting to know. It's interesting to think about. Um, sometimes it's hard to relay it to the person that you're working with, but it's it's good to understand. Yeah. All right. So final question for the day. Can you help explain central sensitization? I know that's a word that's been flying around physical therapy over the last several years, and it's, it's getting pretty popular. Um, people may be using it the wrong way, not sure, but can you just talk about that and try to explain some of uh, and how that works? Yeah. It, I mean, central sensitization sort of stands for like a sense of like an overly sensitive central nervous system. Um, I think sensor, central sensitization and chronic pain have been linked together a lot. And I, I don't think of them that way, not that they don't occur together, but I think I kind of think they could occur apart, maybe if I don't know. So essentially, central sensitization occurs. Um, when there's been repetitive, um, like threat signals sent up to the brain, um, and then the nervous system will eventually get sensitive. And the kind of science behind it is if the spinal cord is getting bombarded with these C fibers, um, that second pain, um, which is going to be more common with chronic pain. Um, if the signals going up the C fiber continue to, um, bombard the dorsal horn and the spinal cord, that inner neuron will eventually die off essentially so now there's nothing at the at the spinal cord that can inhibit signals and that doesn't just mean the c fiber signals that means um all the light touch signals whether noxious or not um so all those signals are just kind of free run up to the brain um and then that in itself is sending a lot of danger signals up and the brain's going to you know, determine that that's an issue. It's going to send pain down. So that in itself can create sensorial sensitization or just more pain. Um, but also what will happen within the brain is that because it's continuing to get signals up and like up to that, from that area, the, the brain will be interested and say, well, like I need more information, like what, like what's going on down there. So then it'll tune up this, the nerve, the peripheral nervous system. So that area will become more sensitive. Um, and I know there's been things about like neural ingrowth and things like that, but, um, it's kind of a vicious circle where you're getting a lot of messages up to the spinal cord, which kills the inner neuron, which then allows free run up to the brain. And then the brain's sending threat or damage signals down, creating pain, um, or pain signals down. Um, but then it'll also ramp up the nervous system, which can then essentially may, I like to make the description of like, if you have your alarm system, a typical alarm system, um, that's not going to go off unless someone like breaks a window to get into your house. And then once that's dealt with, the alarm system goes off and you're fine. Um, occasionally with central sensitization, the alarm system never goes off or, and, or it can become so sensitive that now, you know, your house is back to normal. Think of that as like things have healed. Um, the alarm system is more sensitive to certain movements or stressors, whatever it may be, to the point where like if a leaf falls on the front lawn, the alarm goes off again. So very non-typically noxious stimulus or like threatening stimuli can become um, 
painful. And, and that kind of explains that inner neuron dying off. Um, and that's one of the ways they would describe allodynia, which is pain to light touch because typically the inner neurons, inner neurons inhibiting light touch. Um, but if it's not, if it's gone, then you're getting light touch up too. And that's going to essentially anger the brain, which is going to send pain down, um, for even light touch. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like a pretty vicious cycle. I mean, if the person is dealing with this, they're pretty much just on a high alert all the time. Anything can set them off pretty easily. Things that we normally yeah. think of that can set someone off or put them into pain or discomfort or whatever is going to bother them. So how do we break this cycle? Are we um, doing anything in PT, like physically, or is this talking, like education, like we're doing now? Like, how do we get them out of the cycle? Yeah. And there's, there's obviously a lot of different ways. And that was central sensitization in like a very small nutshell. But the good thing is, and I tell people that too, is like, okay, so if you've been in pain for a long time, your nervous system is sensitive. Um, most likely you're going to start to see like poor sleep or, um, you know, high stress inability to kind of relax and recover. Um, which obviously just takes a toll on, the nervous system and then ramps it up again. So because it affects so many systems, I kind of think of that as there's a lot of different ways that we can help um, calm it down. Uh, the biggest thing in general is that you have to like calm down the nervous system. We know that sleep helps with that. We know that relaxation and trying to control your stress helps with that. Um, we know movement helps with that depending on the degree or the amount that you do. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of things that we can do. And I think, I think one of the biggest things like I had a patient, um, last week, who's a younger girl, but she's had back and neck pain for a long time because of a car accident. So I asked, I did my typical evaluation or oh, history, I guess. And then, um, went through the evaluation. There wasn't anything, you know, was relatively unremarkable outside of just being, um, like, provocative to movements or certain pressures. Um, but I also dove into like how, how she's sleeping. I asked her what a typical day looks like. I asked her, um, like, does she feel stressed or not? And I just sort of made an inventory of those things. I did not, you know, I gave her some exercise to work on. And then I, the only other thing I told her was like, we're going to work on sleep. There's a lot of different ways to do it the very first thing I want you to try to do between now and when I see you next is just try to go to bed at the same time every night. Like, I don't even care if you go to sleep and she's like, well, and then not right. Like no phones or screens in the bed. And I was like, I'm not even going to say that. Just like go into your room, lay in your bed at the same time every night. I don't care if you watch TV or you're on your phone, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. But like, can you just do that? Um, so yeah, the, the treatment can be, I mean, there's other treatments, you know, as far as like, um, you know, referring out to a pain psychologist or something like that, which is going to be way more effective than anything we can do. So you have to recognize that that could be um, an area to intervene if necessary. But the big three things that I work on is like stress management, um, sleep, and then movement, and whether that's changing their positions at work, if we can, or teaching them how, or just general exercise. So there's a lot we can do because it affects a lot of systems. The hard part is it affects different systems and different people, which make the treatment very individual, making it therefore 
quite difficult to figure out which is most likely going to be helpful. No, I think that's super important, like dialing in sleep, stress management, even nutrition too, right? So if they're eating um, processed foods, high in sugar, inflammatory foods, all that's going to affect their nervous system, just how their body functions. So if you don't dial in sleep, nutrition, and stress, we're really not going to be able to make that big of an impact if all those three things are just out of whack. And with physical therapy, yes, we can get them moving and get them on an exercise routine, but they need to dial in those other three things to actually move the needle a little bit more. That's how I see it in my eyes. Yeah. And that's when you have to pull in some of those other providers that are experts in those fields. Um, but yeah, the same goes with smoking. Anything that can create some sort of like threat, now be your chemical threat that nociceptors are perfectly capable of monitoring. Um, anything that, that, excites those fibers, it's going to send a signal up and in a healthy environment, the signal won't get there. Um, or if you, you know, sprain your ankle, the signals will get there until the brain is determined that protection is no longer necessary and everything comes back down to normal. And that's where rehab can help. Um, but if, you know, there's, there's certain things that will predispose people to having that chronic pain or a sensitized system and lack of, I mean, they may have lack of sleep for the last 10 years and it was fine, but then they get hurt and now it's a problem. Um, or you know, they've been smoking for a long time and then that's creating issues. Um, so yeah, it's a, definitely a complex system, but the, like I said, there's a lot of different places where we can intervene. And the, the idea is that um, that gives us a lot of opportunities, which, I think giving that information to the patient can be very helpful um, as far as giving them hope and things like that. Yeah, and that's one of the best things about being a physical therapist. You can dive into some of those things like sleep, nutrition, and stress. We might not be the, the best of the best, like the experts, but we can give them applicable knowledge and things that they can start doing right away to help improving the system or improving whatever they're dealing with. So um, the more well-rounded we are with those things, the better that we're going to be even if it's not someone that's dealing with central sensitization, it could be an athlete trying to improve that last little bit of performance. It's all those things that make a difference. Yeah. This stuff doesn't just, just doesn't just like stop at the tip of like what I feel like, and maybe it's just me, but when people say chronic pain, I immediately go to like someone with low back pain that's been there for a long time. This knowing this stuff goes into um, everybody that has, that you're seeing with pain, which for me is everybody. Um, so understanding the process, maybe not as detailed as what I said or what some of the research articles out there show. Um, there's a lot of good resources that will help kind of make, make it a little bit more understandable and digestible. Um, and just understanding it, even if you didn't present it to the patient, just knowing what is happening has helped me like so much with how I would treat something. So if something's happening, I'm not, you know, freaking out because I know that this can happen with pain that's been there for a long time or pain that's been there for a short time. It's just pain is the most common thing we see. So understanding it is probably one of the most important things that we can do because, you know, you're not going to make, if that's what you're dealing with the most, you probably should understand it, um, at least to a stronger detail than uh, your patient's. 
Yeah, I definitely agree. I know I have some things to look up after this and start reading. So on top of that, who would you recommend for someone that's looking to get more into pain science and uh, neuroscience education? Where would you go? Who are your top three? Uh, so I've a lot of the stuff that I just talked about um, was from Adrian Lowe. Uh, he has some really really good stuff. Um, you could just probably just search his name on PubMed and find a ton of stuff. Um, he has a few books out there. He has courses and lectures and things like that. Um, I like, uh, Lorma Mosley and David Butler. Um, they have that, that, um, classic explain pain book. Um, that I, I don't know if you're familiar with, but that's, that is a book that really it's geared. I mean, you can use that information for yourself for your benefit, but also it's geared perfectly for the patient. Um, or at least for you to be able to give to the patient. Um, Jared Hall has a really good book called Sticks and Stones, and it's essentially a full book of analogies that you can use to help describe some of these things to patients. Um, I've used multiple of those um, just depending on the patient and trying to figure out what they understand, but I've used those before. Um, and then Greg Lehman has some, has some workbooks and things that you can, that you can look at uh, that are also helpful. It's so it's kind of nice to look at different people because they all explain the very high level concepts, but then break it down in different ways that make it a little bit more digestible. And that's all you really need to know. You don't need to know it down to like the A5 or C5 or stuff. Um, but yeah, I guess that was five. Yeah. That was five people. <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of things to look up and uh, check out. So what would you say is the biggest takeaway from today? Every, what, is some, what is the one thing that everyone should know after listening to this? I think knowing that there's more to know, maybe I wouldn't expect someone to memorize everything that I just said about uh, the process of pain, but just knowing that there is a reason why a lot of these, why, why pain is happening um, and, and how it happens. And I just think that that'll help, um, help them manage their patients and themselves uh, more effectively. Awesome. And where are we going next week with this? I know we're doing a series, so this was pretty much the introduction. Where are we going next week? What's the focus? Yeah, I think for next week, and we kind of touched on this this week, so I definitely want to talk a little bit more about the importance of understanding pain. Uh, and then I think we can go into how I would use pain, the knowledge, pain knowledge, I guess, with patients. Yeah, I think that's going to be, that's going to be a big hit for everyone listening. I know that's something I'm looking forward to looking forward to hearing next week. So be on the lookout for that. Anything else that you want to add for today? No, I think that is, that is good. I don't know. It's a fun, it's a fun topic. There's a lot to learn about it. Um, you can go super deep or pretty service level, but either way you're going to, it's going to help you. Um, I think it's, I think it's interesting, uh, but it'll definitely help your patient care for sure. Yeah, definitely. Like I said, there's going to be a lot that I take away from this. So um, once again, thanks everyone for listening to Athletes First Performance Podcast. Um, everyone have a good week and then we'll hear from you guys next week. Thanks for listening to the Athletes Performance Podcast. If you have any questions regarding this episode or future episodes, please be sure to reach out on social media or our website.